This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, I'm proud to note we're going to be speaking with Matt Weiser of the Sacramento Bee. He's writing some excellent pieces about the Delta controversy. There's currently a plan to construct a peripheral canal around California's Delta, from which water is extracted and sent south into San Joaquin Valley, Los Angeles, and even San Diego, thanks to federal and state water projects. The peripheral canal would would send even more water south, And since the Delta is already in very sorry environmental shape, this promises to be very controversial in the not-too-distant future. So stay tuned for our chat with Matt Weiser in our second segment today. All right, let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is January 15th. It was on January 15th in 1559, two months after the death of her half-sister, Queen Mary of England, Elizabeth Tudor, the 25-year-old daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, was crowned Queen Elizabeth I at Westminster Abbey. Her reign initiated a golden age of English history. On this date in 1907, American inventor Lee DeForest, widely regarded as the father of radio and grandfather of television, patented the Audion radio tube, which made wireless broadcasting feasible. However, there's quite a bit more to the story. We recommend very highly Ken Burns' Empires of the Air to tell the story about early radio. On this date in 1918, the English-born comedian Stan Laurel first started work with the Hal Roach Movie Studio. In late 1926, director Leo McCary suggested that the skinny Laurel team up with rotund comic Oliver Hardy, and a classic comedy team was born. I have to laugh just thinking about those two. When I visited Bombay, India, now known as Mumbai, back in, I guess it was 1988, I remember going out on a date. What did we go and see? Well, surprisingly enough, a 1932 Laurel and Hardy film, which 50 years on was still pretty funny. On this date in 1962, when asked at a news conference if U.S. troops were fighting in Vietnam, President John F. Kennedy answered no. While he was technically correct, U.S. soldiers were, in fact, serving as what were called combat advisors with the South Vietnamese Army. On this same day, over in the U.K., the British Meteorological Office adopted the Celsius scale of temperatures, 220 years after it was devised by the Swedish scientist Anders Celsius. And although I'm a big fan of the metric system, this is one I can't agree with. Personally, I just much prefer my daytime and evening temperatures in Fahrenheit. Thank you very much. When Fahrenheit put together his scale, he put the three-digit mark, 100, at about body temperature, which is actually very useful physiologically. The body's cooling mechanisms don't work so well above body temperature, so when you know you're at 100, you know it's hot. I don't know, it just works better for me than saying, oh my God, did it hit 38 today? On this date in 1970, Muammar al-Qaddafi, a young Libyan army captain who had deposed King Idris in September of the previous year, was proclaimed Premier of Libya by the General People's Congress. Son of a Bedouin farmer and an ardent Arab nationalist, Muammar Gaddafi is still in charge over in Libya. And on this date in 1992, 
Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, released the first web browser on the Internet, which is frankly kind of a startling thing to think about. That was just 1992. Imagine trying to negotiate the World Wide Web without a browser. Our quote of the day comes from outgoing President George W. Bush, and we would like to note this will be our last program of the Bush presidency. And I would note that as we speak on our live broadcast, President Bush is trying to explain the nation to the nation why it is his tenure in office has been a resounding success. We don't think you necessarily need to tune into that. But our quote of the day comes from our outgoing president, who was very chipper in his last press conference. In fact, it was noted that far from seeming depressed about his coming loss of power, Bush seems largely in good spirits. At one point during the press conference, Bush pursed his lips and mocked the suggestion that the burdens of office are too great. Said George, it's kind of like, why me? Oh, the burdens, you know. Why did the financial collapse have to happen on my watch? It's just, it's pathetic, isn't it? Self-pity. Say what you want about the Bush family. They don't spend a whole lot of time pondering a lot of these egghead ideas. This reminds me of when his old man was uh, president-elect back in 1988. He was asked by reporters what he planned to do when he actually assumed the reins of power. And in anticipating what the reporter was, was getting at, that being sort of an FDR or Ronald Reagan-style uh, a uh, hundred days where you come in and start moving and shaking. Bush Sr. looked at him and said, oh, you mean the vision thing. And in fact, that is what the reporter meant, the vision thing. George Sr. didn't have a lot to add. And it turned out, neither did his son. Aww. One surprising item of the Bush presidency is that we mentioned some months back, I guess, that there was some optimism that Bush might designate an area in the Pacific as a marine sanctuary. Well, to the pleasant astonishment of environmentalists everywhere, the president actually did so. And so from what may be the first to last time on this program, let's give him an attaboy. First, this prompts our quip of the day coming from Jay Leno, who said, President Bush has declared three Pacific Ocean regions as national monuments. They're now totally protected areas. Unless, of course, somebody finds oil. And I can't resist our bonus quip of the day, also from Jay Leno, who said, Joe the Plumber is now going to the Mideast as a war correspondent for a conservative website. On one hand, he's not really a war correspondent. On the other hand, he's not really a plumber either. So why not? Which means we're going to have to bring back our own Evo the Plumber, to counter some of this. And speaking of the Pacific Ocean, our statistic of the day is 48. That would be actually the population of Pitcairn Island, which is, oddly, the smallest country officially recognized by the U.S. government. And history and movie buffs will recall that Pitcairn Island was settled by the mutineers off the HMS Bounty. And our guest commentary today comes from Philip, who noted the following. Soon an African-American man will leave his residence for a larger, more expensive one owned by the taxpayer with a vast lawn and perimeter fence. The fact that this man will reside in this house should make us stop and count our blessings, for it proves we live in a nation where anything sometimes is possible. 
Many believed this day would never come. Most prayed one day it would. It is an amends of sort, a righting of a great wrong. Proof that we may now judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. The vast majority of us believe that this new resident has earned his place in history, and we know that his time in the new house will not be easy. So we say to him, good luck, OJ. Actually, we have to confess that was Phil Proctor of the Fireside Theater <laughs> who sent us that one, which we, we edited a bit. All right, let's move to the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for the American banking industry, and they certainly are in need of some good news, when an Ohio man was arrested in his local bank after he stood in line wearing a ski mask before staging his holdup. Apparently, police in the city of Stowe, Ohio, said Felix Goldstein, 24, of Highland Heights, was arrested after a brief car chase. The police say the teller asked the man to take off his mask before being served. man displayed what turned out to be a toy gun and demanded money, then made off with an undisclosed amount. Said police captain Rick Myers, it's unusual for a masked robber to wait in line at the bank. It was, according to the Week magazine, conversely, a bad week for memoirs. A couple weeks back with the news that yet another author's incredible life story was a hoax. Herman Rosenblatt now admits he made up Angel at the Fence, which described how he fell in love and later married a girl who threw him apples over a concentration camp's barbed wire fence. Rosenblatt's explanation for his trickery? I wanted to bring happiness to people. Nice idea, Herman, but memoirs traditionally are factual. We do want to encourage his efforts, though, in creative writing. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for American divorce proceedings when it was revealed that a Long Island surgeon, Dr. Richard Batista, who's been embroiled in a nearly four-year divorce proceeding with his wife, told her that he wants her to return the kidney he donated. The doctor does say, however, he will settle for $1.5 million in compensation. Yes, it's apparently a pretty bitter uh, divorce proceeding in which the doctors claim that he's been prevented from seeing his children. To which he added somewhat lamely, this is my last resort. I did not want to do this publicly. This has prompted some commentary from legal authorities. Said Seymour Reisman, a Long Island divorce lawyer, I've been in the business for 40 years. I've never heard of that. It's not married property, not a marital asset you can put a price tag on. Manhattan attorney Susan Moss weighed in saying, the good doctor is out of luck and out of a kidney. All right, from the Only in America file, and speaking of lawyers, we have the following. A New York City woman has filed a $10 million federal lawsuit because she wasn't allowed to bring her dog on the subway. Estelle Stam, 65, said that Wargus, her 120-pound livestock guard dog, should be considered a, quote, service animal, unquote, 
under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Stam claims that without him, she suffers panic attacks. Lawyers for the city, however, cite web postings in which Stam wrote fondly of a previous dog's, quote, tremendous killing power, unquote, and the way, quote, the seas of people part before us, unquote, on crowded subways. Clearly, the plaintiff is not overly concerned about inducing panic attacks in others. All right, also from the Only in America file, we have the fact that uh, next month, February 24th, in Sacramento, there will be another of these um, motivational business seminars. I like the blurb line they have from the Washington Post describing this thing. Called it, the Super Bowl of Success. All speakers live and in person, dash, all in one day, exclamation point. And the guys that write the copy for this, they tend to get a little bit, uh, a little bit overblown. But I have to, I have to, I just have to comment on the categories and the speakers. The first category is competitiveness, personified by Michael Phelps, described as the greatest Olympian of all time. So I got that people that attend this event will be able to swim considerably faster once they're done. Second category, perseverance, as exemplified by America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Yes, apparently Rudy Rudy's will not be talking about perseverance in the marriage market. Motivation will be exemplified by America's number one motivator, Zig Ziglar. Attendees will be informed about how Zig learned discipline, and perhaps also how Zig learned to shake hands and roll over. Business skills, this one may be my favorite. The speaker will be president and CEO of Forbes, Inc., Steve Forbes. His talk will be on America's Promise, Your Keys to Growth and Opportunity. Apparently, if you go to this event, you'll be able to learn from Steve how it is you can succeed in business by inheriting vast sums of money from your father. And the showstopper, leadership, will be covered by none other than General Colin Powell, described as world-famous soldier-statesman. As far as we can tell, General Powell's talk will stress how to lead without spending a whole lot of time on how to evaluate the data you've been given before you lead. But I love this. He's going he's to tell us about the unified team, how to get everyone on the same page. Anyway, I'm sure this is going to be a very, very worthwhile event. Easily worth the $4.95 admission charge. And we are sorry to report that Bernie Madoff will not be able to make this year's event or his usual seminar on how to invest wisely. Anyway, you know, it's really fun being a smartass sometimes. All right, since we're in a smartass mode, I can't resist this item. There's been apparently a small flap over uh, the fact that Republican National Committee Chair candidate John Chip Saltzman distributed a CD to fellow party members, which included a song entitled Barack the Magic Negro, described as being written by conservative satirist Paul Shanklin, And, of course, jackass radio commentator Rush Limbaugh couldn't resist playing it on his radio program because Rush thinks that sort of thing is just hilarious. I'm sure the song's pretty atrocious, and I know Rush Limbaugh's an ass. But is this really something worth getting worked up over? Commentary by Wilmer J. Leon III, from Perspective, Lamented the sorry situation represented by this, uh, by Chip Saltzman sending around this CD. Lamented, Dr. Leon, 
As a candidate to chair a major American political party, Chip Saltzman should have better sense than to promote bigoted, divisive, and juvenile attempts at humor. I don't know. Personally, I'm more in keeping with Ruben Navarrete, writing in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Commenting on this, said Mr. Navarrete, we referred back to the controversy in 1992 where rapper Ice-T released an album featuring a song, Cop Killer. Said Ruben, during those skirmishes in the culture wars, you would hear liberals defend the creative process, praise the First Amendment, and dismissively tell anyone who was offended by vulgar lyrics to get over it and develop thicker skins. Now those on the left have a chance to show us how it's done and walk it like they talk it. Added Navarrete, the CD was a boneheaded thing to do. If Saltzman really wants to lead a party that has managed to scare off or tick off just about every color of the rainbow and now finds itself with an ever-shrinking base of white rural voters. But it wasn't racist. The racism is coming from those on the left and their simpaticos in the media who twisted the story to fit the narrative of a GOP hostile to minorities. That storyline lets the Democratic Party look progressive by comparison, which allows it to rest on its laurels instead of doing its part to improve race relations. Anyway, enough said about that. I think we reported on this show some months back about the country rankings uh, considered the most livable places in the world. The top three were Iceland, Norway, and Australia. Iceland also scored pretty well when, uh, when uh, countries of the world were assessed in terms of how green they were. It came in 11th. And as I reported last summer, I really enjoyed my, uh, my, my visit to Iceland in, in August. But uh, its number one ranking as world's most livable country is probably going to be challenged by the fact that all of Iceland's banks failed last year. So we're going to have to look in on, on little Iceland in a few months, sort of as a microcosm of the U.S., to see how they're faring. And by the way, when Newsweek assessed uh, which countries in the world were most green, one, two, and three were Sweden, Switzerland, and Norway. The United States came in 66th, having been preceded on the list by Ukraine, Peru, and Bulgaria. We'd like to wish a happy fifth birthday on today's show to the Mars Spirit Rover, which is still in operation five years on. It's, a, it's Twin Probe Opportunity celebrates its fifth birthday, I think, next week. It's just remarkable that these little robots are still running around on Mars sending back data. Very cool. And this correspondent was quite startled to see a new image, uh, taken here in the solar system of the planet Mercury. NASA's MESSENGER space probe is making several passes at the planet as it prepares to enter orbit in a couple years. But on the last pass, it photographed a side of the planet we'd never seen up close. And guess what? It doesn't look like the other side of the planet or really anything else in the solar system. The, uh, the side newly photographed is splashed with long, thinned rays of, of uh, ejected material, which makes it look kind of like a peeled orange. Anyway, we'll learn more next September when Messenger makes its, uh, its next pass uh, preparatory to, to taking up orbit around the planet in March of 2011. And uh, finally, the evidence appears to be emerging that a mysterious event in the history of the world, at least here in North America may have a very unusual explanation. Scientists have known uh, for a long time that something dramatic appeared to have happened about 12,900 years ago 
here in North America. A thriving culture of Paleo-Americans, they were known as the Clovis people, vanished seemingly overnight. And although North America was populated with quite a few large animals, horses, camels, lions, mammoths, mastodons, saber-toothed cats, giant ground sloths, giant armadillos, etc., all those animals seem to have disappeared rapidly. Scientists have often debated whether this was climate change responsible or whether perhaps it was the predations of, uh, of man. Of course, it doesn't explain why man himself disappeared. And what people are now thinking, based on uh, evidence from the geologic layer where this took place, is that perhaps a large comet smacked into the skies above North America with enough energy to ignite fires all over the continent and then induce a subsequent mini-ice age. This is a local version of the worldwide catastrophe 65 million years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs. As we mentioned last June, it was the 100th anniversary of something smacking into uh, the skies above Siberia with the force of about uh, 100 megatons, with the force of a very large hydrogen bomb. They never found a crater in relation to that, uh, that event in Siberia. Uh, it's assumed that if the, the object that hits the Earth is, is loosely packed, I guess you'd say, it, it may ignite in the atmosphere and not reach the ground. Well, that's what they think happened in North America, perhaps 13,000 years ago. And in support of this, they're finding little diamonds strewn about six different sites dated to this exact, uh, this exact time frame. In some future installment of this program, we're going to see if we can't uh, track down uh, the authors of this recent study and, uh, and chat with them about it. Uh, this correspondent was down in Berkeley uh, last Sunday uh, soliciting one of the protégés of Louis Alvarez, who, along with his son Walter, first proposed 25-odd uh, years ago that the extinction of the dinosaurs was related to an impact from space. Regrettably, uh, Paul Hoke, who was a grad student of Louis Alvarez, uh, said he didn't have a good line with son Walter. Walter Alvarez, has co- of course, has been on our short list of desired guests since we started this program, and then and, and, and we're, we're going to give it a shot. But let's take a break and then come back and talk about water, California's water, what, what its future may be, with Sacramento Bee reporter Matt Weiser. Stay tuned. <laughs> 